Marcel Sternberger was a methodical man of nearly 50. With bushy white hair, honest brown eyes, and the bouncing enthusiasm of a sardis dancer of his native Hungary. He always took the 909 Long Island Railroad train from his suburban home to Woodside, New York, where he caught a subway into the city. On the morning of January 10th, 1948, Sternberger boarded the 909 as usual. En route, he suddenly decided to visit Laszlo Victor, a Hungarian friend who lived in Brooklyn and was ill. Sternberger changed to the subway for Brooklyn and went to his, went to his friend's house and stayed until mid-afternoon. He then boarded a Manhattan-bound subway for his Fifth Avenue office. Here is Marcel's incredible story. The car was crowded, and there seemed to be no chance of a seat. But just as I entered, a man sitting by the door suddenly left, and I sat in the empty seat. I noticed a man who was probably in his late 30s. He was reading a Hungarian-language newspaper, and I said in Hungarian, I hope you don't mind if I look at your paper. The man seemed surprised to be addressed in his native language, but he answered, you may read it now. I'll have time later on. During the half-hour ride to town, we talked. He said his name was Bila Paskin, a law student when World War II started. Had, uh, he had been put into a German labor group and sent to the Ukraine. Later, he was captured by the Russians and put to work burying the German dead. After the war, he walked hundreds of miles on foot until he reached his home in Debrecen, a large city in eastern Hungary. I knew Debrecen quite well, and we talked about it for a while. Then he told me the rest of his story. When he went to the apartment where his father, mother, brothers, and sisters lived, he found strangers living there. Then he went upstairs to the apartment that he and his wife once had. It was also occupied by strangers. None of them had ever heard of his family. As he was leaving, full of sadness, a boy ran after him, calling, Paskin Bachi, Paskin Bachi, the child was the son of some old neighbors of his. He went to the boy's home and talked to his parents. Your whole family is dead, they told him. The Nazis took them and your wife to Auschwitz. Paskin gave up all hope. A few days later, too heartsick to remain any longer in Hungary, he set out again on foot until he reached Paris. He immigrated to the United States in October 1947, just three months before I met him. All the time he had been talking, I kept thinking that somehow his story seemed familiar. A young woman whom I had met recently at the home of friends had also been from Debrecen. She had been sent to Auschwitz. From there, she had been transferred to work in a German factory. Her relatives had been killed in the gas chambers. Later, she was freed by the Americans and was brought here in the first boatload in 1946. Her story moved me so much that I had written down her address and phone number. It seemed impossible that there could be any connection between these two people, but as I neared my station, I looked in my address book. I asked, was your wife's name Maria? He turned pale. Yes, he answered. How did you know? He looked as if he were about to faint. I said, let's get off the train. I took him by the arm at the next station and led him to a phone booth. He stood there like a man in a daydream while I dialed her phone number. I told her how I was... Uh, I told her who I was and asked her to describe her husband. She seemed surprised at the question, but gave me a description. Then I asked her where she had lived in Debrecen, and she told me the address. Asking her to hold the line, I turned to Paskin and said, Did you and your wife live on such and such a street? Yes, Bila said. He was as white as a sheet. 
Try to be calm. Something miraculous is about to happen to you. Here, take this telephone and talk to your wife. His eyes were filled with tears. He took the telephone, listened to his wife's voice, and then suddenly cried, this is Bila, this is Bila. And he began to shout wildly. Stay where you are, I told Maria. I'm sending your husband to you. He will be there in a few minutes. Bila was crying like a baby and saying over and over again, it is my wife. I'm going to my wife. Putting Baskin into a taxi cab, I directed the driver to take him to Maria's address, paid the fare, and said goodbye. Bila Paskin's meeting with his wife was so emotional that afterward, neither he nor Maria could remember much about it. I remember only that when I left the phone, I walked to the mirror like in a dream to see if maybe my hair had turned gray, she said later. The next thing I know, a taxi stops in front of the house and it is my husband who comes toward me. Only this I know, that I was happy for the first time in many years. Even now, it is difficult to believe that it happened. We have both suffered so much. Each time my husband goes from the house, I say to myself, will anything happen to take him from me again? God has brought us together, he said simply. It was meant to be. Was it chance that made Marcel Sternberger suddenly decide to visit his sick friend and take a subway line that he had never ridden before? Was it chance that caused the man sitting by the door of the car to rush out just as Sternberger came in? Was it chance that caused Bila Paskin to be sitting beside Sternberger reading a Hungarian newspaper? Was it chance? Or did God ride the Brooklyn subway that afternoon? The daily life of the Christian is not built around chance encounters, coincidence, and good or bad luck. We are meant to see all of life as marked by the sovereign good hand of God. The Christian faith holds two realities in tension at the same time. God is sovereign over all things, and what we do genuinely matters. I'm going to talk about God's sovereignty a lot over the course of the next number of minutes. And when I say that, I just want you to think kind of overarchingly, when we talk about God's sovereignty, we're talking about the lordship of God. He is the Lord over creation. God's sovereignty is his exercise of power over all of creation. And so what that means for the Christian faith, this idea, is that we are not naturalists who, who believe that if God exists, it's at a distance, having no active part to play in the affairs of life. But at the same time, nor are we fatalists as Christians who believe that we are mere robots without the ability to make decisions that have real consequences. God is neither impersonal, nor are we robotic and given to doing things against our will. Now, the reason I say all this is because this text is brimming with examples of both of these things at play. So is God sovereign or are humans responsible? Yes. So here's where we're going. We're going to look at God's sovereignty and human responsibility in first, salvation. Second, the word of God. Third, judgment. And fourth, decision making. So let's look at the first, God's sovereignty and human responsibility in salvation. 
Now we see both of these things in play in in so many places in the Bible. Let me just show you a couple. In John 6, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Who shall not hunger? Whoever comes to me. And whoever, what? Believes in me. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me, he goes on to say, will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Well, who will come to Jesus? Everyone that the Father gives Jesus. And what do the people do who come to Jesus? Well, they believe and they come. Romans 10, 14 puts it this way. How then will they call on him? That's people who don't know about Jesus. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Here's what we gather from that text. Do you know who saves? Where is salvation found? Well, the Christian believes that salvation is found in Jesus. Jesus saves. But what we also see happening in Romans 10 is that we are to go and tell the good news. So what seems to happen is that human responsibility matters because we are meant to go and tell. And as we go and tell, the gospel is proclaimed and people come to believe. Both of these things at play. Acts 1.8, earlier, a couple weeks ago, we saw this text that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So what will happen when God comes upon you? Well, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So we will go to the ends of the earth proclaiming the gospel, but we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. Interesting, right? We see God's sovereignty and human responsibility in salvation. In our text here, we see this little note. It's in brackets probably in in most of your translations. Because Luke doesn't need to record what exactly is going on in the room for all those that know. He's letting us as as hearers, peering into the situation, he's setting the circumstances for us, the scenario. And he tells us in verse 15 that the company of persons was in all about 120. William Barclay was a Scottish theologian in the 20th century, and he said of that verse, he said, we are told that the number of disciples was about 120. That is one of the most uplifting things in the New Testament. There were only 120 pledged to Christ, and it is very unlikely that any of them had ever been outside the narrow confines of Palestine in his life. Since there were about 4 million Jews in Palestine, this means that fewer than 1 in 30,000 were Christians. And these 120 simple folk were told to go out and evangelize the whole world. I've I've appreciated this sentiment probably more in the last six months than ever before. There's something about the kingdom of God that like, you know, if you have the faith of like a mustard seed, some of the the go small in order to go big. Uh, It's really interesting. What we see going on in the early church is that the ratios like one in 30,000 were these followers of Jesus. That's as if there were three Christians in all of Chilliwack. And yet we're supposed to take courage from a text like this. Why? They weren't particularly educated. They weren't the best of the best. But they they were people who had genuinely encountered Jesus. And they were given precisely the same mandate that you and I still have as followers of Jesus to this day. Go and tell. Share Jesus. There's only a few of you. But it just might change the world. 
I was talking with a guy named uh, Micah Fries a while back. And early on in his ministry, he's a pastor. Um, early on in his ministry, he was being mentored by uh, the pastor of a mega church. And at one point, Micah asked this pastor of a mega church, you know, what's the most significant thing? What's the most important aspect of your ministry? And you know, of course, there are these areas of like a prayer life and studying the word for yourself and, and loving your family, caring for them well, um, certainly preaching, those things matter. But he's, his response to what's the most significant thing you do in ministry, his response was, I disciple three every year. Like, I, I'm really intentional about discipling three every year. And Micah was like, I think this guy's just being nice to me. He preaches to thousands every week. He knows I pastor just a little church. He's just being kind. Oh, you, you know, you, you, you hang out with three. And he's like, no, do the math, Micah. He said, you know what? In the first year, yes, you're discipling three. But he's like, those three, I get to agree with me. He's like, I, I contractually bind them, actually, that in the next year, they will go and they will disciple three. That's the agreement. And so I want you to do the math later, if you'd like. In year one, sure, you are closely discipling three, but in year two, it's nine. In year three, it's 27. In year five, it's 243. In year 10, it's 59,049 people. If the three would go on to disciple three, would go on to disciple three. 59,000, far greater now in a decade, far greater ministry than even his megachurch preaching ministry. By year 15, it's 14,348,907. By year 20, it's three and a half billion people. And by year 21, it's more than the population of the world. It's over 10 billion people. Now, of course, you know, some people, that's not the way people work, right? You're going to disciple this person, and then the next year, it's like they, they disciple zero. I know, I know the numbers break down at points, but some might disciple more. It's really fascinating to me in this moment, with all the limitations we've got, what if we all discipled three? And something that I've found in my ministry is that when I need to preach the Bible, I study the Bible harder, <laughs> When I know I'm meeting with someone who has questions about Jesus, I dig into those questions more deeply than I would if I was just going my way as a follower of Jesus. This is good for your soul to look around and say, who are my three? My friend Jonathan Michael a couple weeks ago said, who are two people in your life who don't know Jesus? Pray for them all year. Pray for them. Look for opportunity that the Holy Spirit might give you to for, for, for them to come to faith. And I would say, yes, pray for those two. I told him, I'll bring that up again. He wants me to keep bringing that up. Who are your two? And I would at the same time say, and who are the three who know Jesus, but that maybe are, are more youthful in their faith. They aren't as mature in their faith that you might be able to come around and disciple. Who are your two? And who are your three? See, we, just like the earliest disciples, are called to go to the nations with the gospel and make disciples. And the Bible promises us that God will be working sovereignly in the midst of it, transforming lives as only he can while we go about making disciples as we are called to do. It's awesome. It's amazing. Second, God's sovereignty. I don't know why I put three fingers up. Second, God's sovereignty and human responsibility in the word of God. It's a mouthful, but let me describe what I mean. In some ways, you could say that the Bible is a human book and it's a divine book, right? I think we could say that. Authors penned 
the scriptures according to their personality and position and means and so on. So much so that if you study the Bible long enough, you're like, ooh, this sounds like Paul. You can tell. Oh, this really sounds like Peter. This sounds like John. This sounds like Moses. Like you, this sounds like David, right? You just hear it. You, you, you get a sense of their personality coming through. And yet at the same time, the Bible is divinely ordained and governed by God to where we can say the Holy Spirit spoke. And that's exactly what we see in verse 16. Peter stood up among the brothers and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who spoke the Holy Spirit by the hand of David or by the mouth of David. So who is ultimately responsible for the Bible? Well, the fact that we often refer to it as the word of God kind of shows our hand there, right? The primacy in the writing of the scriptures is God. It's God's word. And like I said about verse 16, it says, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now what Peter's doing is he's bringing back up the fact that the scriptures already prophesied that Judas would betray Jesus. It, it, it's these authenticated prophecies about Jesus. It goes on in verse 20 to say, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. Peter's looking back at the Old Testament scriptures spoken by the Holy Spirit, written by the Holy Spirit and saying, look, 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 this was all ordained. Now, what did the apostles see is that what they saw was that the, the whole Old Testament was a book written by the Holy Spirit predicting the coming of Jesus. Uh, Luke wrote Acts. He also wrote Luke's gospel. And in the final chapter of Luke, chapter 24, we read that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Biblical scholars tell us that there are 322 direct Old Testament prophecies that describe the nature and character of the coming Messiah, as well as specific details about his birth and his life and his death. And all of this helped prove to them that Jesus was really from God. It was a divine signature in the scriptures that couldn't be forged because it was God writing beforehand what it was going to look like. I read recently about uh, CIA double agents, and whenever a, a double agent wants to reveal information to the CIA, the CIA usually gives them several layers by which to identify themselves, so there's no chance they could get the wrong person. So I'll, I'll, I'll uh, recite to you the one example that I read about. One particular Soviet double agent was given six prearranged signs to accomplish so that they would know the, the proper identity of their double agent. First, he was to go to Mexico City, and second, contact a certain guy in the city to let him know he was there and identify himself by the name of I, period, Jackson. Third, after three days, he was to go to a specific place in the city, and fourth, stand in front of the statue of Columbus. Fifth, with his middle finger placed in a guidebook, he was to stand there. When he was approached by somebody asking for directions, sixth, he was to say that the statue of Columbus was a magnificent statue and that he was from Oklahoma. At that point, they knew 
they had their guy. Jesus didn't just have six signs to identify him. He had 322. Some of them are are these. Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. We read about that in Micah 5.2. That Jesus was from the tribe of Judah and from the lineage of David, 2 Samuel 7. That he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver was prophesied in Zechariah 11. That he would die by being pierced through and that he would die as a substitute for others. We read prophesied in Isaiah 53, and that he would be raised from the dead, Psalm 16. All these are ways of not only authenticating the truthfulness of scripture, but the primacy of God's authorship of the scriptures, even while being penned by human authors. Okay, so, so far, here's where we're at. Who saves? God does. When we go out and proclaim the gospel. Who wrote the Bible? God did, as human authors were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Both things are true, both things are revealed. Now, third, God's sovereignty and human responsibility in judgment. Actually, let me just, let me just expand a little bit more on that. This is why that's important for you. All, all that's to show you you can trust it. The CIA agents, six layers of of authenticating, they're like, well, this is totally our guy. There were 322 layers of authenticating Jesus as the Messiah, prophesied in the scriptures, penned in the scriptures, and they all were revealed to be true. You can trust it, and you can be confident that as you read the Bible, God is speaking truth to you, and he's revealing Jesus to you. That's so wonderful and so important. Okay, third, God's sovereignty and human responsibility in judgment. This is a tricky one. Depending which verses you read about Judas, you might think that A, Jesus was duped by someone in his inner circle, or B, God ordained Judas's betrayal and he had no choice in the matter. Reading all of the accounts and taking them as a whole, we see that God ordained it to happen and Judas is held accountable for his willful betrayal. Before the crucifixion in John 13, Jesus said, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And Judas dips bread into this bowl and Jesus whispers in his ear, go do what you set out to do. Do it quickly. Peter, looking back at the crucifixion in retrospect, in Acts 2, said, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. We have two things going on at once in the scriptures God's plan and Judas's plot. Judas's betrayal was both fulfilled prophecy and willful on Judas's part. That's how the Bible presents it. And Jesus, as he does with every sinner, gave Judas warnings and pleas to bring him to repentance and salvation. And at every point, Judas turns that down. He never embraced Jesus with true repentance and faith. Here he is, Judas, in Jesus' inner circle of 12 disciples, 
Judas had the unique task of carrying the money bag for Jesus' ministry, taking care of the finances. We read in the Gospels that Judas would dip into that from time to time and help himself. What we see is that Judas essentially was a church member who served on the count team, headed up the stewardship team, and took a particular interest in church budgets, but he wasn't a believer, he was a deceiver. That was Judas through and through. And that's all of us to an extent in the sense that we're all worshipers. And I think that Judas is a man who worshiped money. He didn't just hold the money, the money held him. Some of us appreciate the game of football for what it is. Others of us worship the game of football. Some of us work out, and I say that really generally and not about myself. Some of us do, and then some of us, it's like idolatry. It's like fitness is my thing. For some of us, politics, it's like we recognize the place in politics. We recognize that it has a place and it can produce some good. But there are those so wrapped up in politics that actually believe if my party wins the election, essentially salvation, redemption will arrive. And God is right to judge our idolatry and worship of another, for he alone is worthy of our worship and he alone can save us, none of those things. And the Bible calls us to repentance and faith and God is sovereign over salvation and is just in his judgments. That's a hard tension to hold, but it's biblical. Charles Spurgeon helps us here as he often does. <laughs> Charles Spurgeon wrote, it is a difficult task to show the meeting place of the purpose of God and the free agency of man. One thing is quite clear. We are not to deny either of them, for they are both facts. It is a fact that God has purposed all things, both great and little. Neither will anything happen, but according to his eternal purpose and decree. It is also a sure and certain fact that oftentimes events hang upon the choice of men. Now, how these two things can be, both be true, I cannot tell you. They are two facts that run side by side, like parallel lines. Can you not believe them both? And is not the space between them a very convenient place to kneel in, adoring him whom you cannot understand? I encourage you to take a page from Spurgeon here. Let the tension of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, especially as it pertains to salvation and judgment, lead you to trust and adore him. Help you kneel in the midst of that tension in adoration of your savior. For this is, after all, the God who sent his son to die in the place of wretched sinners so that we could get what we don't deserve, grace. He is good. He can be trusted, even in difficult doctrines like this one. Fourth, God's sovereignty and human responsibility in decision-making. Judas betrayed Jesus, Really, this is the big, big picture of what's happening in this text. Jesus betrayed Jesus, and the apostles knew that they were supposed to fill his office. I could go on and on about that, the idea of 12 apostles representing the 12 tribes of Israel, for this is a new Israel, and this is a new covenant, and so they are to have these 12 that represent that, but let's set that aside for now. 
What we see next is a window into their process of decision-making. Early church decision-making. Here we go. Look at verse 21 and see if you can pick up the things that they're doing. First, so one of the men who have accompanied us, Peter says, during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must, be, must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Okay, few ways that they, they land on Matthias, few ways. First, they had, uh, using wisdom and discernment, they realized that the apostle really had to meet these qualifications, had to have accompanied Jesus during his ministry from when Jesus was baptized to his ascension. He certainly had to have had witnessed the resurrection, the resurrected Jesus. Additionally, what that meant was that there were two men that, that met those qualifications. A guy known as Joseph, Barsabas, Justice. He's got a lot of name things going on. I find that complicated. Already, I'm leaning towards Matthias personally. But then they have these two, and then they pray about it. And as they pray about it, they're like, show us which one you have chosen. And then they cast lots, which is really fascinating, right? Proverbs 16.33 says, the lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord. So it's not chance. They're, they're not just thinking it's a game of chance. They've used wisdom and discernment. They've identified two candidates. They've prayed to God and asked him to show which one it is to be. They put their two names on two rocks and put them in. They shook it, and the name that came out was Matthias, and they said, that's God's guy. I have a question for you. Did any of you find a spouse by casting lots. Is anyone looking for a spouse and considering, you know what, I make cast lots. It's biblical. I don't recommend it, by the way. I don't recommend it. This is something that's descriptive in scripture. It's not prescriptive. Here's what's fascinating. This is the last instance in the Bible that we see the casting of lots. Anybody know why? What's the very next section? the coming of the Holy Spirit, Pentecost. See, what happens is this is the last time that lots are cast recorded in Scripture because Pentecost happens soon after and the Holy Spirit came to indwell God's people. And what is the Holy Spirit? He is the counselor who helps us make wise decisions. In other words, Acts begins with casting lots and ends with being led by the Spirit. I'll give you an example. In Acts 13, says, well, they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. The Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. There's no casting of lots there, but there's a leading of the Holy Spirit as the church are giving themselves to fasting and praying. I think this is a really helpful text in helping us to see what godly decision-making looks like. To be a little bit provocative, let's talk about COVID and COVID procedures for a minute. How did we decide to do what we're doing now? Many are watching from home. A number are in the sanctuary here, spaced out, masked, all that kind of stuff. How did we land here? Well, we tried to look to the scriptures and we tried to discern a number of things from them. 
It's really important that churches gather, isn't it? I mean, we're told to gather. It isn't really the essence of the church, the gathered believers? So we should gather, right? And so we held that intention with the fact that we're to love our neighbors and we were assessing the risk of COVID and how that might harm our neighbor. We're also recognizing that the provincial government is putting on a lot of restrictions and saying, okay, the scriptures tell us that we're to honor government, render to Caesar what's Caesar's, we're to honor the government. They're making recommendations and we have to discern, are they doing that because they, they're out to get us, or are they doing that because they're out to help the province? And we have to discern that. And then, of course, as the church, we want to be a good witness in the world, and we need to gauge and, and evaluate and discern how best do we live as a compelling Christian witness, as a church family. We take all of those things, those, those scriptural principles, and we pray about them, and we discern them. And we recognize that in our context, we are a church that's elder-led, and we believe that God ordained particular elders to lead in this place. And so as they particularly give themselves to, to understanding the information, both provincially and about the virus and from the scriptures, and give it to prayer and make decisions, that we land in a place that we believe we are to be. I say all that, and literally, it could all get shut down next week. <laughs> Like, like it, we're just living in, in all of that tension, trying to understand what's faithfulness look like, but believing that God in his word and God by his spirit and God in the leadership in the church and God with the community of believers who love him and love each other and love our community can land in a place that honors him and honors others. I believe that this is actually a real life-giving thing we're talking about here from this text, trusting that God's sovereign hand is in the big decisions and the small decisions. Francis Schaeffer wrote this. I, I, once I was flying at night over the North Atlantic. It was in 1947, and I was coming back from my first visit to Europe. Our plane, one of those old DC-4s with two engines on each wing, was within two or three minutes of the middle of the Atlantic. Suddenly, two engines on one wing stopped. I had already flown a lot, and so I could feel the engines going wrong. I remember thinking, if I'm going to go down into the ocean, I'd better get my coat. When I did, I said to the flight attendant, there's something wrong with the engines. She was a bit snappy and said, you people always think there's something wrong with the engines. So I shrugged my shoulders, but I took my coat. I had no sooner sat down than the lights came on and a very agitated co-pilot came out. We're in trouble, he said. Hurry and put on your life jackets. So down we went and we fell and fell until in the middle of the night with no moon, we could actually see the water breaking under us in the darkness. And as we were coming down, I prayed. Interestingly enough, a radio message had gone out, an SOS that was picked up and broadcast immediately all over the United States in a flash news announcement. There is a plane falling in the middle of the Atlantic. My wife heard about this, and at once she gathered our three little girls together, and they knelt down and began to pray. They were praying in St. Louis, Missouri, and I was praying on the plane, and we were going down and down. Then, well we could see the waves breaking beneath us and everybody was ready for the crash. Suddenly the two motors started and we went on our way. When we got down, I found the pilot and asked what happened. Well, he said, it's a strange thing, something we can't explain. Only rarely did two motors stop on one wing, but you can make an absolute rule that when they do, 
They don't start again. We don't understand it. So I turned to him and said, I can explain it. He looked at me. How? And I said, my father in heaven started it because I was praying. That man had the strangest look on his face and he turned away. As we wrap up here, I've got a question for you. How do you live? More like Schaefer or the pilot? In other words, do you live like a theist or a naturalist? Ah, what are the chances? Oof, we were lucky. Ooh, that was unlucky. You watch the hockey game, ooh, they had some puck luck. You watch Kawhi hit that final shot, ooh, that was a fortuitous bounce. See, if you hold the pilot's view, you will treat life more like, a ch- like chance and view God as non-existent or distant and disengaged in the everyday stuff of life. But if you hold Schaefer's view, you realize that you can pray at any moment and the God of the universe hears you. This view also has a profound impact on things like thanksgiving and praise. My wife said to me earlier in the week, I'm so grateful. I said, what are you grateful about? She's like, you know, when we were dating and newlyweds, we we both had ideas of, of the jobs we wanted to have, and now we both have them. We had ideas about what our family would be like, and and our family is like that. God has been so good. I'm just so grateful. I think that's a proper response. God did that. God is sovereign. The naturalist would pat himself on the back, a little bit of luck and a lot of hard work. The Christian thanks God. God gave me a vision and passions and an avenue to glorify him in my work. He gave me this family. Thank you for your grace, Lord. It's the view that nothing good comes to you that isn't from your heavenly Father in heaven who cares for you. On the other hand, you also know that when bad things happen, you know that bad things don't happen without a purpose, even though it's hard because there's purpose to it. In the midst of even the difficulty, we can say, I give you praise, God, because you know better. You seek your glory and my good, and, and that's all I ought to really want anyway. You can pray in confidence because you know he's not distant and that he can act and that his ways are good. Imagine the peace available to you, Central, when you believe that God's sovereignty extends to the big and the small decisions of your life. So, I've done a lot of work tonight. Here's what we've discovered. A biblical understanding of God's sovereignty and human responsibility leads to effective mission, trust in the authority of God's word, a right understanding of the judgment of God, and a framework for wise decision-making. <laughs> what a gift this text has been to me. I hope it has to you. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you so, so much for your grace, and I want to continue that uh, theme of thanksgiving. Lord, everything good in our lives comes from you, and everything hard and difficult is nonetheless in the palm of your hand, and you hold us there, and you love us, and you will see us through, for you are that good, you are that faithful, you are that strong, God. 
And so I pray, God, that we would be able to hold these things in tension. And like Spurgeon taught us, Lord, in the moments where we are uncertain, where there is such tension that we wrestle with it, Lord, I pray that we would kneel in that tension and worship you and give you praise and give you thanks and trust you. God, I thank you for your faithfulness. Continue to guide us in this season of our church's life, I pray, and in every one of our lives. For your fame and glory, amen.